Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today's uh, special guest is uh, Lisa uh, Seamus and Margaret O'Dell. Uh, they will be talking about DIY City, The Collective Power of Small Actions by Hank Dittmar, published by Island Press in 2020. Now, Hank was the founding principal of Hank Dittmar Associates, an international urban planning firm. And before that, he was the chief executive of the Princess Foundation for Building Community, leading the foundation in contributing to the design of our built environment at practical and policy levels, both in the UK and internationally. Hank was also the chair of the board of directors of the Congress for the New Urbanism, the founding principal and CEO president, sorry, and CEO of Reconnecting America, and executive director of the Surface Transportation Policy Partnership. He was appointed by President Clinton to the White House Advisory Committee on Transportation and Greenhouse Grass Emissions and the President's Council on Sustainable Development's Metropolitan Working Group and provided expert testimony to the United States Congress, the OECD, and the Australian government on numerous occasions. So thank you, Lisa and Margaret, for being here, and welcome to the show. It's great. Thanks. This is a great thing to be talking about. It's a wonderful set of ideas, and it's particularly important, I think, as our relationship to cities is changing with all the things going on in the world right now. Oh, well, let's start with uh, Lisa and tell the audience about yourself and then uh, Margaret. Uh, okay. Hi, I'm, I'm Lisa Seamus. Um, I've worked in communications for many years. I'm at the American Association of Geographers now as their director of communications. And I worked with Hank um, many years ago in the early 90s uh, during the effort to enact the first big federal transportation law that was truly multimodal and truly um, uh, broke open a lot of the funding for not only transportation, but also for uh, creating streets and landscapes for people, really a holistic approach. Um, I was quite young at the time, and uh, it was um, really a privilege to work with him. He was himself a very holistic person, and I learned a lot from him, among other things, that you could be a working artist and also work in a, a field that was more sort of recognized as an official field. So Hank was a poet, um, a very fine writer and essayist, as we can see in his book. And uh, because I've been a writer for many years, it was, it was great to have that role model early on, that you could be an artist and bring an artistic sensibility um, to even work that seemed very technocratic in, in its essence. Margaret? 
Um, so I knew Hank for many years, starting back in the 90s when I was managing environmental giving for a foundation based in Chicago, the Joyce Foundation. And um, we funded his work, the, the work around uh, linking transportation to urban reinvestment and urban redevelopment that Lisa just described. And um, as he went through a series of incarnations, the different positions that he had that were always tied together by a really inspiring sense of house and just better places for people. Um, after Hank died in the middle of writing this book, because I also had been an editor in a past life, I, um, his widow gave me his computer and his notes, and I pulled together um, the incomplete chapters and interviewed people and um, filled in the blanks to complete the book that Hank was working on as a final kind of summing up of the way that his thinking had evolved in his life about cities and people and creativity. Well, let's start with what was uh, Hank's motivation for writing this particular book? And uh, what was your motivation for helping him to uh, complete and, and get it published? Um, Hank was sick for a couple of years. He'd written several books, but I, I do think this was meant to be a bringing together of his ideas, his evolution as a thinker, um, his understanding of how people... How he, he'd gone from, you know, he had a nice way of saying in uh, planning school, he learned about um, the Daniel Burnham statement, make no little plans. And as he went through a career as a planner, as an activist, as um, the kind of person who it was, he was described, I think, sometimes as the Prince of Wales um, guru for cities, how he um, sorry, I'm getting some dog barking in the background here. I hope it's okay. Just keep going. <laughs> that sort of thing out. Um, how the more he worked with people in different situations, the more he thought that ideas for cities needed to come from the bottom up and that um, he had this idea that was very important to him, which is in the title, do-it-yourself cities. And he thought of that along with another idea that was important to him, slack, meaning there's give in the system. There's room for people to be creative there's excess capacity that makes cities and communities more adaptable, more resilient, more creative, 
and more likely to come up with fresh ideas. And these ideas had become very important to him, and he was starting to think about how you implement them in city planning. And that was kind of where he had come to when he became too sick to complete the book. Uh, Lisa, uh, what do you think that uh, Hank's motivation for this book was, and what was your motivation for helping him to write and complete this? Um, well, yeah, I mean, um, my motivation is the simple part because a group of people whose work I love and admire included me, wanted to include me, and I was uh, eager to be included. Um, I didn't have a great, as great a role in, in producing the book in, in any way. I'm just sort of part of a rather large um, network of people who really want to make sure these ideas are enduring and that they get out into the world. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that Margaret said about Slack. That's probably the most meaningful. There's an entire chapter in the book devoted to Slack. And um, that's probably the most meaningful part of it to me. Um, Slack actually was invented in Texas, and I was a Texan at the time, and I was close to the same uh, generation as Hank, a sort of punk, -punk, post-punk young people who were really influenced by, um, as maybe every generation, young generation has its own way of dropping out or trying to, uh, or sort of, you know, buck the system just by enjoying life and being together and creating things that don't necessarily have monetary value of some sort. And in Texas in the late 80s, this was expressed as, you know, through Richard Linklater's work, in particular his movie Slacker, um, and again, so good to read this book now um, and sort of recognize myself in it and uh, see the ways in which Hank, um, I guess one thing that drew me to Hank's ideas and his and this project is he really embraces ideas. He doesn't um, make a distinction between, you know, high and low culture or expertise having to be something that you um, absolutely have to have a degree in what have you to, to have expertise. Um, he's he's very um, he's very inclusive, and Slack is a very inclusive uh, concept. Um, and this one chapter, you know, if, if people buy the book and read nothing else, this chapter is so applicable to so many fields, including chiefly, in some ways, um, city design. He breaks it down. You know, he takes it from a pop concept that some young people got together, and it was a, sort of tongue in cheek and funny and um, you know, just even a little bit silly. And then he, he really breaks down why that sort of um, relaxed, silly energy is so vital to cities. And he talks about Slack in terms of um, Slack has to do with space. So vacant spaces that are not very expensive. Slack has to do with money. Things don't cost so much that you have to spend, um, you know, this generation now is working two, three jobs just to be able to afford to live. And if you have to do that, you can't be creative. Um, he talks about Slack in terms of time. and He's a big fan in um, planning of the, the value of taking time, of things taking a long time, even several generations and happening at um, small incremental levels. And in fact, I think as, as Margaret um, alluded to, um, though he'd been schooled like every good planner and all the, the great, you know, make no small plans kind of Daniel Burnham sort of um, city beautiful approaches to cities he ultimately learned and, and was, was 
passionate to to um, to get the word out that uh, um, it's really the small individual or small group effort that makes cities what they are. They have to aggregate. They have to you know sort of have collective um, impact. And and all of this from this concept that you know 1991 when the movie came out it was a it was a comedy we all thought it was funny you know just you know yeah black we just want to sit around on our sofas and talk and like watch movies but like in fact what hank is arguing for is that is the kind of energy that all of us could benefit from think what we could do if we would all relax a little bit more as margaret said like we're now in this time of you know for for fortunate people uh, um you know, great pause. Unfortunately, a lot of us are working ourselves literally to death right now. But what if we took the time that we have, some of us have now, to leverage that power to create communities where everyone gets to have time, everyone gets to be creative. I think that's a vision that he had and he felt there were ways for the actual physical design of places to Oh, yes. I Your question. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Yeah, because I, I was going to get to that in that chapter. It was like, what, what was Slack? But um, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll back up just a little bit and I'll go to chapter one where it all started. And um, the title is Cities Are Back. Um, well, how, where did cities go? Why did they leave? How did, how did they come back? I'll start with Margaret. <laughs> okay. Um, so the way Hank saw it, partly after World War II, if you think about popular culture, it was depicting the dream house in the suburbs, right? The picket fence, the, um, and the soldiers coming back from the war, um, were helped by a range of public policies to, moved to the suburbs. So there was a big highway building program so that you could become a commuter, which hadn't been possible before the war. There were um, mortgage programs and secondary mortgages so that suddenly you didn't have to have enough money to buy a house outright. You could pay for it over 30 years. There were... um, you know, movies like Mr. Dodd's Build is His Dream House, you know, which just idealized this picture. There were songs about rose-covered cottages. Um, and at the same time, there was kind of a disinvestment in cities and a popular vision of cities becoming more dystopian, you know, slums, crumbling buildings, crime, and the popular culture supported that vision too, right? With Escape from New York and movies like that, Um, Blade Runner. Um, So what um, that first chapter is talking about is how suddenly cities became fashionable again, and that had to do with a combination of a lot of things, like also coming from popular culture, um, young people wanting to live in cities and be part of the creative ferment, and 
people watching friends and thinking, oh, that's what living in a city is. It's sharing an apartment or a coffee shop with a bunch of cool people. Um, So there was just a sense that cities were attractive again and people didn't rush to move away from them. And that, to Hank, is a really desirable situation where um, creativity comes from, social ferment comes from, all kinds of exciting new businesses come from, um, creativity in the arts comes from. And um, that was something he thought you could only find in cities. Oh, so then the city made a comeback. It it really has. Yeah, yeah, it really has. Um, And you talk about, okay, chapter two um, is sometimes the small stuff sticks. Learning to improvise. Okay, well, what's the small stuff in... um, I'll go to Lisa for a minute. Uh, what's the small stuff and uh, how does it stick? Um, so late in, I'm going to answer this in a roundabout way. Late in the book, um, Hank answers, sort of claps back to folks who recognize some of the forces that Margaret has just mentioned and who are understandably just really um, – sick and tired of being sick and tired of a system that commodifies people and disproportionately commodifies people of color, black people in particular, um, around sort of where they live, what they do, how they work, etc. And um, Hank felt that very acutely and um, worked assiduously to try to fight that. But he also says late in the book, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to live in the world we have instead of the world I wish existed. And I think his way of doing that was to say, if we don't have fair and just systems, if we have, you know, one bill after another that privileges um, white affluent people who have access to credit um, over black and brown people, um, and in fact blocks them from credit, if we don't yet have really fair housing policies, if we don't yet really have fair banking policies, et cetera, what is it that we can do now? And I think he was a big fan of the uh, flying under the radar moments um, that uh, people of color have known about for many, many generations. They've had to as survival skills that artists have known about for many, many generations um, that, um, you know, uh, queer and trans people who've not had the, the marriage rights to, to build wealth in the way that cishet people have had. I think that, um, Hank's very sort of uh, diplomatic, oblique way was to work. Sometimes he he had a great ability to work with uh, the very people that you might not want to shake hands with who had all the money and had all the power, but to turn um, their attention to a framework, perhaps, that permitted ordinary people to do things around the edges or in the margins. And I think he really felt that that was that coupled with better participatory planning processes was probably going to be your best bet for cities to be as resilient as they need to be, as opposed to doing, you know, big, um, uh, you know, uh, ambitious regional plans that are sort of, you know, command and control by a handful of agencies or a handful of people with, with capital. Um, so I, I think that's what he was talking about, but, but I think it's a, a strength of his, um, 
writing that you could have five people and 10 opinions about how exactly his, his visions for, you know, small being in the best and most enduring choice uh, for how that can play out. Margaret, but do you want to comment? Yeah. Um, a couple of things. The, um, chapter, chapter two about the small stuff sticking has a wonderful story in it, which to me embodies in a lot of ways, the thinking of the whole book. And it's the story of Rosetown in Jamaica, where um, this is when Hank was working with Prince Charles's foundation. And he went to Jamaica to visit a project that the Prince's Trust had been become involved in before he'd worked for them. And um, they had funded sort of a community center and the community center bought some computers and was supposed to be doing some computer programming training, but it wasn't really doing anything. Um, And this was a particularly interesting place because um, it was divided into two rival territories of rival gangs that had been fighting each other and killing each other throughout the 70s and 80s. And finally, the government of Jamaica just bulldozed the land between the two halves of the community to keep them apart. So um, the Prince's Foundation and Hank went to make a site visit there. And uh, people were kind of saying, when is the prince going to give me a new house? And they realized that they had a lot of work to do there with giving people the power to plan their own community. And they did, they um, started with bringing the grandmothers of the two halves of the community basically to march into the middle of the the no-man's land that had been created and say, okay, we're going to work together. And then they um, created a sort of planning commission made up of residents and brought in Andres Duani, who's um, an architect from Florida, to help them think about design and community development And they ended up rehabbing the existing housing, uh, redoing abandoned buildings to create public buildings like a library and a community center, Um, doing building trades uh, training for the young men who lived in the community, and um, creating a system whereby the residents who'd been essentially uh, squatting in the homes that they were living in were able to establish legal title. So just a huge amount of good. And then building other infrastructure, but the point is that it had to start with helping the people decide for themselves what their community needed, how they were going to go about 
creating it with the existing resources that they had and then building an economy and um, a lot of community activity around it. So it's a wonderful story. Well, I have to get the book. It's so so perfectly suited to that one. um, Do you you mind if I just throw this in quick? Sure. There's another story, uh, another community that uh, Hank tells a story of much later. Um, It was an informal settlement that the, um, uh, let me find out the the town um, name. Um, It was an informal settlement that uh, the government had been trying to to move for many years. Um, Let me see it. Um, uh, Daravi. And um, because of sanitation issues. And finally, the community organized itself. And the women in particular, not not coincidentally, once again, the women in the community organized. And they um, collected money door to door. And they set up uh, uh, their own um, waste management system, their own toilets, and charged people to use them so that they could keep them up and keep maintaining them. And they solved the problem. And Hank tells a story of the, the person who, was, was part of this community coming and telling this story to a you know, room full of suits and ties who were all kind of uncomfortable talking about toilets because they thought they would be hearing about some grand vision. But, you know, that's where it begins with like the basic, basic things that people really need uh, to take care of and, and to be problem solvers. And I think when Hank went into any community he worked in, he looked for the problem solvers. And those are usually very detail-oriented people. I love the image of the two grandmothers from the two sides of the town being the ones who finally brokered the deal, right? Um, so just had to throw that one in as well. Oh yeah, the uh, the the women led the charge to uh, to, to peace and uh, tranquility and some economic prosperity. Right. Yep, that's right. right. And, and, and uh, not in some yeah. glamorous way, but in the most practical way they could do. Yep. They just sat down at the table and wrote it out, wrote out the plan. Yeah. You know, there's another wonderful quote um, that he had. I think this was from Eric Reynolds, who was a developer in London that Hank worked with a lot. And um, what Eric did is take a lot of brown fields, you know, abandoned warehouses and abandoned industrial areas and redevelop them into works working and living spaces for artists and creatives and small entrepreneurs and uh, craftspeople. And um, he said, and Hank quotes this, that property development isn't planning. It's not like you get together and you have the big picture. It's husbandry. And it's like growing a garden, you know, you look at what's there and you improve the soil and you find the things that are going to work and you do it gradually over time. How long did it take to, uh, to do that settlement uh, from the Princess Project in Jamaica? What was the time frame on that? You know, I don't actually know. Um, but... Let me see if I can find some dates. I mean, I think it's never something. So uh, I know there were 
various things that happened in like 2014, 2012. I trying to find a date for when he first visited. Um, you know, but it sounds I, like it's over years, over years. I would say over years. It's and it's a continuous process. They're still working yeah. on it probably today. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I do think I, I've, um, they started as far back as 2006 um, and did a big charrette process in 2008. And then, as Margaret says, through through maybe the next six to eight years, they were still doing work. And um, I don't have anything, rec- you know, a recent update on it as of today. But um, it does it does seem like it was a very you know sort of a, um, a, a very intentional long term process. Well, that kind of leads to the next chapter, I think, you know, um, the, the DIY, do it yourself an enduring idea. And that's the title of this book. Um, uh, I didn't know DIY kind of started in the seventies. Uh, can you talk about, uh, how, how, where did DIY start and why is it the name of this book? Well, um, he, um, Hank, was very inspired by, among other people, Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog, which I think was in the 70s and 80s, although he says, he, he also says that the, um, really the, the origin of the whole idea was the magazine Popular Mechanics and sort of that whole world of magazines that told you how to build your own radio or your own train set or whatever. And the Whole Earth Catalog was a kind of hippie version of that, which uh, was published out of California in a very kind of... um, like the the very earliest form of desktop publishing, right? They they typed on a typewriter and they photographed the pages and then they stapled them together right? and distributed them that way. And it uh, told you how to build a house, um, how to grow a garden, how to do all kinds of things. And the notion was to support all the people who were trying to go back and live off the land um, and uh, live in intentional communities and things like that. So that's where um, Hank thinks the idea came from, but then it had an evolution among the artists that he lived around in Texas, as Lisa was saying, who were making their own movies, right, with um, Super 8 cameras and things like that, and um, just very much a spirit of if you want to do it, you can figure out a way to do it. Yeah, and I would add to that, though, that I I don't think um, think we should take the DIY title. The DIY title is a great title. I love it. 
I don't, I wouldn't want a reader to take it, especially in the current climate, as a sort of carte blanche permission to do whatever, right? No, no regulations, no, no nothing. Um, Hank er, tells the story of the the terrible uh, ghost ship fire in California, and um, makes more positive and, and constructive examples throughout the book of the ways in which, um, you know, good governance and regulation toward uh, a larger um, sort of uh, vision of, of how cities should, should work is really part and parcel. Like you can't literally have a complete laissez-faire DIY city. What the goal perhaps is, is to have policies and financing mechanisms that are smart about the need to make it as possible as we can for people to make their own marks and do their own DIYs and just sort of a good balance of the two, right? You don't want it to be just um, the, you know, sort of like uh, um, cities are not just experimental labs, like we definitely need framework. So I think the DIY to me is the spirit uh, that we want to infuse cities with. We want cities to feel like fascinating, interesting places, full of opportunity, full of creativity. Um, you know, that perfect, that perfect blend of like, I can be anybody, but at the same time, I have my community, I'm known and I'm loved. You know, I have my neighbors, I have my, my family. Um, and I think to do that, you know, he's makes a lot of recommendations throughout the book uh, for ways that the regulatory and financial processes can can make that possible instead of blocking them as, as they're doing now. He was, um, you know, uh, for the last half or third of his career, he was very influenced by both the beauty of London and Great Britain and, and, and the villages, how the villages and cities in Great Britain do their planning, but also he watched uh, the, the, the massive um, infusion of capital and the rise of absentee neighborhoods through, you know, in London and, and throughout the world. And so I think that he definitely would not argue for just anybody coming in and DIY whatever they want. It's more, more along the lines of what Margaret is describing. And, and to do that, to privilege people who maybe don't have a lot of resources or lot, lots of connections um, to have their DIY cities, um, I think he was really um, an advocate for, you know, smart, um, frameworks and policies for that to be possible. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit because I, I did want to talk about, you know, Slack is a good thing. And uh, it says here, he says, Slack uh, is an, an indication of resilience of both human and physical capital. Well, you know, since we're right now in the kind of all either semi-lockdown or lockdown in this pandemic, you know, uh, what do you think Hank would uh, be doing kind of right now and thinking about Slack right now, how could Slack fit into uh, what we're going through right now? This is the, may I take this one first? Margaret? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> this is the best of times and the worst of times. You know, this is a time when honestly the, um, the incredible gaps and inequities of our societies are being laid quite bare for all to see. And you really begin to see like which of us wants to act on that and which of us is just okay with how, you know, wants to go back to quote unquote normal. I think for uh, those of us who don't want to go back to normal, um, uh, you know, this is a time for us to really reflect. I think um, 
you know, what William Gibson said, the future is here, but it's just not, you know, it's, it's uneven in places, right? Um, some of us are experiencing this uh, as an as a incredible slowdown and a time to just take stock and really to question a lot of things we've always taken for granted. Um, you know, going off to school, uh, you know, in the morning, going off to work in the morning, um, large scale transit, uh, um, you know, cars. <laughs> a lot of us are questioning, wow, how, you know, how did I know that, like, you could live for months without using your car much or ever. At the same time, so many people are really suffering, um, really suffering so profoundly right now. What would Hank be doing? Uh, I'm very curious. I'm, cu I'm most curious in Margaret's answer to that. I think I did not know Hank well enough, but I just I did tell this one story, which I can you can come back to me and I'll tell a story of a, a possible future Hank. Uh, um, what he was doing in the last days of his life that w was interesting. But I, I sort of want to turn it over to Margaret for a moment because Margaret, I, I think especially getting to know his book as intimately as you have, what would he make of this moment now? Yeah. Well, tell us you, to do? <laughs> he, he definitely was thinking about the ways in which work was changing and thought that society needed to change with it. And so he thought quite a lot about how, you, you know, people flourish if they are near the action, right? Um, people, people flourish if they're around other like-minded people and they can connect with them. And, um, the the way that work had already been changing the pandemic that we've been going through has drastically accelerated that and i think hank was thinking about what would be the structures in society that you would need in order to make it possible for people to work you know, part-time or seasonally or, um, you know, the way, the way so many people are, are adjunct workers already. And then they would have the rest of their time to do creative, fulfilling, exciting things and maybe invent new things for the world. You know, they could be off in their garage inventing the next, personal computer or whatever. Um, he already was talking about that in this book, and I think we're in a situation where it's been really accelerated. And the other thing is the way space is used. And as Lisa said, he was very aware that in Vancouver and Toronto and New York and Seattle and um, London – the investment in real estate has gone from the point of real estate is for everyone to have a place to live to the point of real estate is to have a safe place to park your capital. And so there are really shocking numbers about how much of New York City housing 
is unoccupied or how much of Vancouver real estate is unoccupied, sometimes for years at a time. Um, and that's because there are investors from other parts of the world who are basically using that as a bank account. So, and at the same time, you know, we have all these built structures that already people are saying we're not going to need, right? Department stores, right? This has all accelerated the demise of the department store. So you could really imagine quickly converting all those buildings in cities into live work spaces for young people, you know, cultural creatives, um, people who can easily work from home. And that would be um, a really sensible way to use that space and place people in an environment where they can be both safe and careful in a situation like what we currently have, but also um, have access to community when they need it. So I think that's what Hank would be thinking about. How to, and because he was a policy wonk, as well as a creative and a visionary, he would be thinking about, as Lisa also was saying, what are the public policies you need? How does government partner with communities to help them design their own way of living? Well, that kind of goes to that next chapter, uh, making spaces for the arts and mm-hmm. um, and re, uh, reimagining and, and reusing, yeah, all these unoccupied spaces now. Um, can you tell me about, yeah, you had the ghost ship in here, and uh, how, do, how do the arts contribute to the development of cities? Um, well, there's quite a long literature of um, how people choose to be, you know, in an artistic and exciting environment when they can, and um, about all the corporations that had moved headquarters out to um, exurban land where it was cheap to build a big new corporate headquarters building. Um, You know, McDonald's did that, Sears Roebuck did that, a whole bunch of the big um, insurance firms in New York did that. And then about 20 years later, they were all moving back into downtowns because actually they found that the people they wanted to hire wanted to be in a place where they could go to the theater, where they could go to museums, where they could hear music, where they could go to restaurants. So um, that's um, the one of the things that the arts does for a city is to create a place where lots of different people want to be and also create platforms where they interact, which you know, that ferment is what sparks new ideas and new kinds of entrepreneurial activity. So, but the problem is that 
historically, the artists are in a place and that attracts other people and the other people um, bid up the price of housing and so the artists can't afford to be there anymore and you've got four stages of gentrification. Um, The top stage, the, the last stage of which is investors are owning that property and um, it no longer is a vital you know, cultural and economic scene. So um, what Hank saw, several examples of, particularly in England, but also in Vancouver and various other places, was um, kind of public-private partnerships to take an underused or vacant space, develop it into temporary artistic uses like pop-up music venues and pop-up restaurants and street fairs. And um, there's an example in London of Trinity Boy Wharf where they built artists' housing and um, studios out of shipping containers, repurposed shipping containers. So you don't have to knock everything down and build it all up again, which is very capital intensive, and then um, it's and then you have to make that money back somehow. You can just slightly tweak the environment that's there and open it up to um, those kinds of temporary uses and it becomes an attractive place that other people want to come to. And the innovation in, uh, at Trinity Boy Wharf was that the developer had a 99-year lease so that those kinds of temporary uses were able to be permanent. It wasn't like once the land became more valuable, somebody would come and build a hotel and, and you know, an upscale mall, and then all the creatives would have to leave. Yeah. Oh, if I could just add something. So, um, Margaret, something that you said in your introduction really struck me, and I, I went and looked back at the ghost ship uh, chapter. And, you know, Hank was really good at, sort of just saying, we've already done this. We, we have a model. We could go back and enact a, a law. Like this law has already been enacted somewhere. We could just write the, you know, he's very straightforward. So like, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? So, uh, so in, in, the, um, in the chapter on making space for the arts, and in particular, I'm making sure that artists are safe and are not forced out of neighborhoods that they've created um, great things in. You know, he talks about New York's loft law, which was amended in 2013, um, but, you know, for, for many, many years, it provided artists some cover to live in non-residential buildings that were not regulated, to, you know, they were not up to, uh, originally up to fire code for residential life, but the, the law made it possible, created um, very, you know, straightforward pathways for artists without a lot of money to just, you know, 
bring it up to code, work with the city to bring it up to code. Uh, that's just one example. Um, you know, so it's, it's not necessarily like, you know, these grand visions that we, we have to, to invent, they, they exist. And a lot of them existed in the seventies and eighties. And frankly, they were gutted by neoliberal policies that wanted to auction off to the higher bidder. Um, another example he gives is um, cities that have recognized how important artists and um, you know cultural institutions and bars and restaurants are to them, and this is certainly something we could use post-COVID, uh, which is to create um, you know a, a night mayor or a night czar, someone who only deals with nightlife in a city, which is such an important part of a city. Um, and you know, last but not least, just to uh, to uh, tweak zoning so that you recognize some places that are special and you give the people who've made them special a little extra consideration because they're contributing so much. So, you know, these are just three strategies that, that Hank was recommending. And what struck me was none of them is brand new. He, he's bringing up things that people have already tried. Um, but he does also argue for trying new things, you know, try it. Well, pop-ups were not a thing when he, he did them at the Santa Monica airport. Um, but they worked and then they became permanent businesses. So sometimes artists are, you know, great group of people to try things and be like, you only have six months and suddenly if it's successful, okay, you can stay three years. It's okay. You know? Yeah. 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 The other thing about the Santa Monica airport story, um, that I really loved was, um, you know, the, the owner of the Barker hangar, couldn't really afford to rehab everything herself. So what she did was rent to offer workspace to electricians and plumbers and people like that. And then they would do the work that was needed in the building. And it took a little um, negotiating with the departments that, permitted that sort of thing to get them to understand that the end result was going to satisfy their requirements. And so they could cut a little slack in terms of exactly how the work got done and not, not go through the agonizingly long process of applying for a permit and waiting for a hearing and waiting for an inspection and um, which, you, you know, Hank was very much increasingly in favor of finding ways to cut the red tape that is well-intentioned, but usually a response to one extreme situation, and then it prevents a lot of creative um, kinds of things that could be done when people try to rehab things or save old buildings on their own. Oh, how interesting. Well, you know, I wish I could have met him, but at least uh, thank you for being here today and uh, letting us uh, know about this uh, amazing individual and keeping his ideas alive. Um, And uh, like I said, thank you for being here today. And I I know we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, I have uh, one last question for the two of you, uh, what do you, what projects do you think that Hank uh, will be working on now? He, he said that he was, uh, before we, we started the show, that uh, he, he was already working on something new. 
Uh, what do you think he would be doing? Uh, oh, well, I actually told the Sarah story, Margaret, you know, Sarah's story about seeing him in London, like mm-hmm. weeks before he passed away. Do you know that yeah. one? Um, so, yeah. Tell me which one. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's so many. Um, mm-hmm. This was the one wherein he was getting, just getting, beginning to roll up his sleeves to work with a local group that was redoing kids' playgrounds in London. And then at the same time, he was becoming quite fascinated with the edible landscape movement for cities. So he was talking to Sarah a mile a minute about these new things that he was excited about. And um, even though, you know, he was quite ill, uh, um, you know, he was just 100 percent in and engaged with the world and alive. And so. Uh, I like to think that if he were alive right this minute, he'd probably be two things I think he'd be throwing himself into. One would be um, probably on a neighborhood level, he'd be getting into like closing some streets and turning them into play streets for for kids. Um, And then at a a larger level, it, it occurred to me as we were talking, I think that Hank would jump in feet first into the eviction crisis that we're facing and um, start to talk about housing rights, uh, probably quite, um, quite energetically. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's, um, and it's so much a problem that could be solved by implementing a lot of the, a lot of the strategies that we've talked about throughout this book. And I'm really glad you mentioned edible cities because that was a theme that we haven't talked about but that was a theme in Detroit. That was a theme in a northern British city called Throgmorton, where um, the people decided to basically make the whole town into an edible garden, and it changed so many things for them in terms of uh, nutrition, you know, members of the community working together, uh, becoming a destination that folks from outside the region wanted to come and see. Big change for a sort of rust belt post-industrial city. So, um, and probably a really important thing for the kind of situation we're in now where transportation is tougher, um, Grocery stores run out of things just because uh, the supply chains are broken and local food is um, one way to build a local economy as they have in Detroit and also address those needs. I like this quote on, on the back of the book. It's a review and it's by Robin, if I say your last name right, Robin Rather of uh, collective strength. I, I, I think maybe this sounds like you, I'm, uh, from what I hear about Hank uh, that you're telling me about, and this sounds like it sums it up pretty well. It says, uh, most planners care about places, maps, buildings, and codes. Hank cared about people first and foremost, along with the music culture and counterculture it brings his legacy to a whole new generation. Yep. That's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again for being here today. Uh, ladies, uh, Lisa Seamus and Margaret Odell. 
And uh, for everybody out there who's getting ready to go buy this book on Amazon or your book place of choice, uh, the book is DIY City, The Collective Power of Small Actions by Hank Ditmore, published by Island Press in 2020. And I'm, again, Trisha Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for listening today.